So um, last week we began a small two-part mini-series uh, and the title was, is Navigating Our Way Through a Culture of Deception. And so today is part two. Last week we looked, we focused more on how to recognize deception when we see it. We looked at things like sophistry, for example. We also looked at uh, the question of which scholar should we believe when two different scholars say two opposite things. And then we uh, also looked at the principle of parsimony and using that uh, when you're faced with two people say two different opposite things, but one person goes to an awful lot of work to argue for the thing and the other one's more of a straightforward, fully explaining it, um, we need to probably put the emphasis on the more straightforward, simpler explanation. So today I'd like to look at something a little bit different now. It's more focused on the ways we are deceived. Three major factors in deception, three major influences in our lives. And uh, just by way of a preview, uh, the first one we're going to look at is the, the power of a personal vice or sin that one is practicing, or even a wrong attitude that one is harboring that can eventually lead us into deception. The second one will be close personal relationships can have a huge influence on us for either truth or deception. And then finally, the third one we'll look at is the influence of our post-truth culture. So let's begin with the first one, it's personal vice. The main idea here is that a personal sin that you continue to practice, or even just a wrong attitude that you continue to hold, will skew your perspective of the truth, leading to a crisis of faith. So let's dive into that a little bit more. So in the Bible, uh, God speaks to us, and one of the things he says, there's a warning here, and it goes like this. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So there's a few things that I have to look here. First one is he's speaking to brethren here. The word brethren in the New Testament is most often used to refer to fellow, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, but there's a bit of a warning here. He's warning about the danger of falling away from the living God. And the antidote to that, or the protection from that, is to encourage one another day after day. And then he goes into detail about how we can fall away if that encouragement isn't there, or if there is a deceit. It's, it happens here, it says, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it seems that basically what's happening is that if we continue to hold a particular sin in our lives, to continue to practice it, or even just a wrong attitude that we continue to hold, it tends to start to maybe sear our conscience a little bit. We, uh, when the Spirit convicts us of that sin, we just sort of ignore it. And eventually, our, ignore, our ignoring of the Spirit becomes to such a point where we don't really feel bad about that anymore. And we're, there's a hardening of the heart towards God that begins to develop. And it, and it happens through the deceitfulness of sin. It's not a major big thing that just all of a sudden, wham, there, suddenly you're conscious of it, but it's a slow process. It's a deceitful process, this hardening of one's heart against the Lord. 
Now, uh, I want to give you an example, but before I give you an example, we just want to pause here and see what did Jesus Christ offer to us? And he said, I came that you might have life and you might have it abundantly. Now, he's not talking about being incredibly wealthy or fantastically healthy uh, because he did say that there'll be a lot of hardship in this life. For those who follow him, there'll be persecution and so forth. But he's talking about fulfillment of a different sort. He's talking about the kind that really does matter at the end of the day. You can be incredibly wealthy and end up taking your own life because it just doesn't seem that there's something pointless about the whole thing. No, he's talking about something deeper here when it comes to fulfillment. He's talking about deep inner fulfillment spiritually. So at the end of your life, even if you've had to go through persecution and hardship, you'll be able to look back if you've walked with God and say, it was so, so worth it. I would not have done it any different. In fact, if anything, I wish I'd have walked even closer to my Lord. So that's what he offers us. And I find that if you're walking with God, if you're close to him, you put yourself in his hands on a daily basis, everything else that really, there's so many other good things. Your, your relationships, not always, as we're going to see shortly, but your relationships tend to flourish to do better. The birds sing sweeter. Uh, you can, the flowers smell better. There's so many deep things that God has created that we just enjoy better. There's just life is so much more fulfilling. Along with the refining fires, you're able to navigate your way through the refining fires of life, the things that really set you back when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, for example. So with that in mind, with what Jesus Christ promised, this enormously fulfilling life, deeply in the way that really matters, uh, a number of years ago, uh, a person met with me who was seriously thinking of going into full-time missions. They are at that time in life serious about their relationship with God. They wanted to go into full-time missions. But as we talked, uh, it became evident there were a couple of issues, at least two issues in this person's life, that were not really in sync with the way God wants us to live. Um, perhaps the biggest one was an attitude uh, problem, and then there was another issue. And... Uh, that really needed to be dealt with before we could move on ahead, or they could move on ahead in their desire to go into full-time ministry. But uh, the things were not dealt with, and they continued to get worse over the years. And what I witnessed in this person's life was a slow hardening of the heart towards God. Whereas one time they were a young, student, a young leader, up-and-coming Christian leader, I mean, but now, eventually, he renounced his faith in Christ. He not only renounced his faith in Christ, but he became very hostile towards Christians who have a sincere, sincerely want to follow Christ, and to the point where he actually, I personally witnessed him blaspheme Jesus Christ online, and no longer just making, regarding, him as a, regarding Christ as, as a fool, as a foolish concept. So how did this all happen? It goes back to Hebrews, that verse in Hebrews, take care lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It really needs, those personal vices can have a long-term effect. No, my, actually Patty uh, often said to our kids, if you're going to say yes to one thing, you always say no to something else. And, and as I've thought about that over the, the years since we began saying that to our kids, especially Patty, it's so true. I, don't, I can't think of anything I've ever said yes to that it didn't involve saying no to something else or vice versa. And in this case, if you're going to say yes to a personal vice or a wrong attitude, you're going to say no to the abundant life 
into everything to that deeper fulfilling relationship with God that he offers. There's going to be something off in your life. Maybe in the end you'll be saved, as the Bible says, yet so is by fire, but there'll be so much regret. So um, moving on from that, it's just another passage in the Bible that says the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth. So let's take a little closer look at this one here. <clears throat> this here, uh, now you don't need to always get into the Greek and Hebrew, okay? Because the translations we have, there's a lot of good translations today. But sometimes it can enrich what you're looking at here. It can just give you a little bit further insight. So I looked up that word put up. What does it mean? And I use a lexicon called BDAG for short. Uh, recommended by my Greek prof as the, the, the best lexicon for first century Greek when the, when the New Testament was written. And that word literally means to put up with something means to regard with tolerance. But it says a time will come when people will not regard with tolerance sound doctrine. That, he's talking about teach, sound teaching from the Word of God. And, and basically, it's not just that they won't believe in it. They will become intolerant to it. They will not tolerate that. And if you show up in their midst, you will be shouted down, tossed out, canceled, or whatever, but they will not be tolerated. The second thing is, what's the problem? Well, it's a personal vice, each individual. We all have our weak points, by the way. Uh, we all have our weak points, but the, there's a difference between whether or not you're dealing with those or asking God to help you. And it's, it's a lifetime effort, or it's a lifetime process sometimes. But this, their own desires are in place. And that word from B-Day is a desire for something forbidden or simply inordinate. It could be a personal vice. Could you see a small sin? Small sins, by the way, are just like small cancer tumors. They grow bigger and they spread. But a small sin or even just a wrong attitude. And as a result of that, they begin to gather around them, not just a teacher, but great numbers of teachers. He says the time will come someday when there'll be a lot of teachers pertaining to things of God, Christianity and so forth, that actually teach what the people want to hear as opposed to sound doctrine. And as a result, it says, the people who follow these teachers will turn away from the truth. Turn away from the truth is another way of saying become deceived. It's either truth or deception. So that's what's prophesied. Um, it's always been that way, of course. It was bad that way back there. But the time has come where well, there'll be a great number of them. And I look around today at what I would call broadly speaking Christianity, and there's a huge branch of Christianity that's growing larger every day. And I just heard another former brethren, a church with brethren roots has now joined the ranks of what we can call culture-led Christianity, where culture leads the way, not Christ. They follow culture, not Christ. Now, what about bad attitudes? Well, those are even harder to figure out. Uh, question, who do you follow on social media? Now, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about spiritual things here because I follow some landscape photographers on social media, and I don't do that for spiritual input, although I love landscape photography, and that can be beneficial, spiritually speaking. But who do you follow on social media with regard to their teachings, with regard to Christianity and so forth? How do you know if they speak for God or not? How do you know? That's the problem. And the best deceptions are those that are just slightly off, but slightly off on the most critical things. 
So Satan is very happy to let you believe 99% of things that are relatively uh, secondary, as long as there's just one critical thing that will eventually spread in your life if you embrace it. So how do you know? Well, you know, don't ask me. Uh, if you ask me, Kirk, how do you know? What are your wrong attitudes? I could probably name some wrong attitudes that I have sometimes, especially, as I've mentioned before, maybe if it's in heavy traffic towards some of the drivers and their lack of expertise, but that's only occasionally. Um, but I am sure that I have attitudes that need, uh, need some tweaking. I am sure there's a lot of that I'm not even aware of, so how do, what do you do? Here's my suggestion. Spend more time in the presence of God, reading and meditating upon His Word. And if you do that, two things will happen. Number one is, first of all, God will begin to shape your attitudes. And He'll change you in ways you didn't even know need to be changed. And there's things now I look back in my life and I see, wow, God has changed me in ways I didn't even know I needed to change. But in retrospect, man, did I ever need to change. And that's a lifelong project. It's a road that goes ever higher up and further in, to quote... Uh, C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia. He will shape your perspectives and thinking. Because uh, asking me to fix my attitudes is like asking the fox to guard the hen house. Number two, you more easily distinguish between those who are true. Let's say, uh, who do you follow on social media regarding spiritual things? You'll be more easy, it'll be more easy to distinguish between those who are true and those who are saying things that do not quite fit with what God says in His Word. We're going to need that. So that's my suggestion there with regard to attitudes. So going back to just a life observation here, for every seduction of sin that one embraces, two things happen. Deception sneaks in the back door while truth and the abundant life depart out the front. You can't have both. And that's basically the act, the influence of a small vice or wrong attitude when it comes to deception. Now let's move to the next factor the persuasive power of relationships. It may be the single most powerful influence for rapid dramatic change over a period of just weeks or months. There are other things that can change you but take years to do it. This can often do it in a matter of days. So let's take a look at this. So <clears throat> uh, last week I shared about uh, a friend, an old friend, who had done something publicly endorse something that's so destructive to the human soul that the Bible warns us, like flee fleshly, fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. But it's so destructive against the human soul that God says that no one who continues to practice that will enter the kingdom of God. So he publicly endorsed this, promoted it, and then I, um, as I said last week, I felt terrible about this. I thought for months, and finally I said, okay, I need to say something. And my first opening of the comments of this, um, just my first sort of oblique, gentle prodding came, it was responded with quite harsh response. And wow, like he never used to behave this way. He never, he never, I mean, even with people who he disagreed with, he never came across this way. And I knew there that basically all those good times we had together back, you know, 35 years ago, I used to look up to him. I remember sitting in a boat with him fishing for yellow perch or having good discussions. From his perspective, that didn't count for anything anymore because he so violently disagreed with me. And I found as I, st so that day or the next day I was standing outside, I was outdoors and I often go outdoors just to be with God. 
And that wasn't happening. And the thought of being with God and, and enjoying His creation, there was just something, there was a bad taste. Something was wrong. There's bad taste around here, and I didn't know what it was. And then I thought, wow, what is this? And within seconds I knew what it was. It was that my beliefs have come between me and my friend. And sometimes when you have a relationship that you really value and your beliefs come be, to that, it's that friend, it's either abandon your beliefs or that relationship is over, uh, that, those beliefs don't look so good anymore. They, they've been tainted, not because of the intrinsic nature of the beliefs, but be, they've been tainted by the damage that it has done to this relationship. And so I had to make a choice. See there, but I had I'd thought about those beliefs for years. I've worked through the scriptures. I mean, it just looks to me, as honest as I can read the scriptures, that this is true, what I'm thinking here. And I had to make a decision. If I say it's, if I'm going to continue to hold this, then it's goodbye, as far as he's concerned. Um, and I had to choose. So I, I, what I'm saying here is the power of a close relationship can make you second guess your own beliefs that are actually true, but just from an emotional perspective, from a relational perspective, they're not so, there's a problem in embracing those. We're designed for relationships, so something that comes in between a relationship between you and another person can be very powerful. It can be very powerful for the good, or it can be very powerful to the bad. The effect can be enormous. So, there's this verse in the Bible that for years I just assumed, you know, without thinking much about it, is about Jesus calling people to follow him and you might have to leave your community and go to somewhere else and serve him and say goodbye to your relationships. Although there's some here you don't say goodbye to, like wife and children, for example. You don't say goodbye to those. So what does this mean? He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my follower. That's bars high there. So let's take another look at that hate. Now, bdag here comes to your rescue. There's actually a Greek word that is translated as hate, but in this context, it's not a good translation. Uh, some of the versions will translate it more appropriately, but there's two, two nuances of that word in the lexicon. And it, the context determines the nuances to be used. And it's the second nuance here, according to bdag, that's being referred to here. And this is exactly, I quote what it says. To be disinclined to, to disfavor, disregard, in contrast to preferential treatment. So there's a tendency to give preferential treatment to those that we really, that are to our friends, to ones we have close relationships with. And that's just human nature. But what about if it comes between you, between God and your close relationships there? So in contrast to this, God is saying you're going to have to make a choice. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, there may come a time where you have, to, you have to give that preferential treatment to your God, your Creator, your Lord, and your King if it's going to come between, if it's a matter of choosing between this or that. It's not literally hating them because one of the second most powerful command, important command is to love your neighbors yourself. So clearly that love has to be there, but the preferential preference can't be there if it's going to come between a conflict between relationships and God. And usually it comes from the other person, not from you. I, uh, it's from the other person who will put the, lay the thing down, give you the ultimatum. It's either this or that, or you're, 
it's bye-bye. So my point is this. It's very likely that over the course of our lives we may have to make a very difficult choice between loving God or compromising to the demands of a close friend who loved one, or loved one. It's very unfair sometimes to make an ultimatum. And, and you know what? Um, sometimes your own beliefs are not respected in our culture. There's a great push to respect what people, their truth, for example, but if it comes to some of the Christian beliefs, there is zero respect, in fact, only hostility. And you may run into this. Jesus said, you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith. Because it's not easy to be hated by the people that you want to get along with. He says, and they will turn away and they will betray and hate one another. So this word hated is the same word again, but BDAG says this is the first nuance of the word. It's, it's the one we commonly think of when we use the word hate. It's to have a strong aversion to, to hate and detest. He's saying you will be detested by your culture. And at that time, because of this, because we want to get along with our culture, we value our relationships and our friends, but if it says many will turn away from the faith as a result, and they will betray and hate one another. Again, the same word. Here's the point. There will come a day when the true follower of Jesus Christ will not only be hated by secular culture, but also be hated and betrayed by those who, and I quote, turn away from the faith. You will have to make a choice, but remember, it's, it, as hard as it is to watch the, what you thought was the love of a loved one be just go up and smoke at the hands of that person who hates you because of what you believe. As hard as it is, remember, there is a greater love that you are loved by, and that is by God himself. And he said on the night before he died, Jesus prayed, and he wants us to know, and he wants the world to know that he has loved us, and the Father loves us even as the Father loves the Son. How much does the Father love Jesus Christ, the Son of God? That's how much he loves the follower of Christ, but it may cost you. Now, in the meantime, there is people out there in the culture who are future brothers and sisters in Christ, and God is drawing them to himself. So even though we have this problem, the culture might hate us, there are individuals within the culture. That's why we need to love our neighbor as ourself. We have a role in finding those people and bringing them to Christ. This brings us to factor number three, the relentless daily influence of our culture. The main idea here is that both we and the next generation are being continuously influenced by our culture every day, and it's a lot of times not so good. Now, it helps to understand a little bit the steps of deception. It doesn't happen just all of a sudden, suddenly as you're walking down the street. You're perfectly fine, and then bang, you're all of a sudden you're deceived. No. Uh, for the things, when our, the way our culture changes our beliefs, to embrace things that are wrong, it starts with desensitization. You may think there are certain things that are wrong or that you never would want to see or do, but you are exposed to those things. You begin to be exposed to those things. And you become desensitized. The more you live in this world and see these things that you thought were wrong happening all around you, it's just an automatic response. You just automatically become desensitized to that. You want to be able to function. It's just a, a psychological response because you need to function in everyday life. And if you're tormented by things all, the, all day long, it's hard to function. So you become desensitized. You don't realize that, but it's happening. The next stage in being deceived is an unperceived persuasion. 
there's a persuasion that begins to occur while the desensitization is well underway. It's not something you're aware of. You don't perceive it. But as, it, as whatever it is you're talking about, or you be, for example, when I was about eight years old, I saw for the first time a murder detect, uh, depicted on a TV show at my grandparents' place. And I, was, I couldn't sleep that night. I've never seen anything like this. Now, it wasn't a real murder. It was just an enactment, and I realized that. But still, I'd never seen a depiction of somebody get killed before. And I was a little kid, and that really bothered me. But as the years went by, I mean, I, I've probably seen thousands of depictions on TV. And doesn't, now I still get bothered if it's a good person that gets killed. You know, we like to see good triumph over evil. But um, man, we get desensitized. And then the next step is the unperceived persuasion. It becomes normalized in our, in our murder, thank goodness. In most, in most cases, there are some that's really endorsed by our culture. but. In some case, you know, by and large, murder of an innocent person who has no say, well, even that, uh, when I think of abortion, that's a little different. But let's say murder is not accepted in our culture. It's not normalized yet, but other things are. And as it becomes normalized and accepted by the culture, there's a persuasive influence that happens. And we're not even aware of it. We begin to become persuaded, become more accepting of it. And then it develops into an unconscious change in our own thinking. Maybe, maybe it isn't so wrong, but we're unconscious about this yet. Maybe, maybe it might be fine, you know, I'm, I'm functioning, and then comes the day of conscious acceptance. So that unconscious change is where you, you finally decide, it's not a, an act of the will, but it's unconsciously you now accept that. That's the third stage, unconscious acceptance. The last stage is conscious acceptance. So that's how our culture changes us. It's a slow and steady process. You could expand on this, and there's a few more points that happen after that, but let's, that'll be good for now. So in James, James, uh, the, God was writing to believers at the time through the Apostle James. And the context of this verse we're about to look at is that uh, he's talking about church and, and church and Christian gatherings, and sometimes rich people would come in, and they would be given special favor, as the culture of the day obviously expects you to, to do. And then the poor people would come in and didn't have two nickels, not even two pennies to rub together, and they definitely would not be given special favor at Christian gatherings in the church. And so the problem was is that they were actually following culture in how they were regarding people. There was a cultural way of assessing and evaluating people, and then there was God's way, and this was totally contrary. And so with that context, God says through, the, through James, he says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Now, why would He use adultery in here? He often uses that. It's when you receive Jesus Christ, you actually enter into a covenant, a new covenant. It's what we celebrate in communion. You have entered into an eternal covenant with God when you begin to follow Christ. It's analogous to the marriage covenant, and I'm not just saying that. It's all the time in the Bible where he talks about he, he, being unfaithful to God is like a person who's unfaithful to their spouse. It's analogous to that, to be seduced into turning from being Christ-led to culture-led is to commit adultery of the soul. It's the most serious form of adultery possible. The bride of Christ is the church, but you are individually parts of that. It's kind of like you're trying to be faithful to God, but you're also 
following, being faithful to the culture. And that's, in God's eyes, adultery. It cannot be both. And you cannot be led by culture. Now, as I said before, there are lots of people out there in our culture, and who knows how many of those are future brothers and sisters of Christ, okay? So people are not, the pro are not our enemy here. People are not the enemy. It's the culture that's the problem. And we saw last week that there is someone Jesus called the ruler of this world who is the father of lies. He's the master puppeteer. And he knows exactly where to connect with people to turn culture in the direction that he wants, the puppeteer, the father of lies, incredible deception that he's capable of. So that's the thing that we face. So how can we remain true? So the time has come, I think, in history of the church, it's always been, of course, but now it's more urgent than ever, to be all in. It was the time back then, but it's really important now. Nothing held back totally given to Christ. Jesus said even 2,000 years ago, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. You're either going to have to choose to follow the culture because there was a time when Judeo-Christian principles, even when I was growing up, were still woven into the culture where I grew up, even though the culture I grew up was largely non-Christian, secular, back in central Manitoba where I grew up. But that has parted ways. And our culture has actively expelled God and Christianity out of every aspect of it as far as it can. They did not realize that when they expelled God, something else came through the back door. What came through the back door is the father of lies, the master puppeteer, the, father, the ruler of this world, and they have no idea. So that's where our culture is going, and the time has come to make your choice all in because I can't, I can't survive in this world trying to ride two horses simultaneously that are going in opposite directions. <clears throat> Practically speaking, uh, it's time to confess personal sins, wrong attitudes, ask God to change us, begin a life of daily total surrender, and to love Him and to ask Him to help us love Him as He truly meant. And the second thing is ask God daily to renew your mind says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're being shaped every day. Our minds are. And we need to know what's good, acceptable, and perfect. I can't transform my mind. I have to ask God to do it by His Holy Spirit on a daily basis. It is told, as prophesied in the book of Daniel, pertaining to the final events coming to the return of Christ, there's a person described there as the man of lawlessness or the despicable person, um, different terms, antichrist. It says, by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those of insight among the people will give understanding to the many. And it's possible that we could be living in those last days, and it's so important that we'll be among those who have insight and give understanding to all those people out there in our culture, future brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a final rescue mission that needs to happen. Now, tendency, I think, if I was sitting in the congregation at this point or through the last two weeks, I'd be checking this off. Am I being deceived? Okay, am I safe? Okay, but what about the next generation? What about your children and your grandchildren? 
those in the greatest danger right now, the greatest danger and with the least chance of spiritual survival in the long term and the least personally mature to be able to handle are downstairs right now in the various classes, children's classes. And the magnitude of relentless, intentional desensitization and persuasion, both unperceived as well as overt and explicit, that our children, our grandchildren, the next generation of believers face on a daily basis five, well, six, seven days a week on social media, five days a week in the public school system is far more advanced than most people realize. Now, before I give you a, a, an example here, I need, to, I need to say this. It's helpful to know what the common ground is with the people who are still out there, the people in our culture and with us. And the common ground is we all want to get along together. We want to love one another. That is actually a, a desire, not just among Christians, but amongst the people in our culture as well. So we do have a common ground, but our culture's methodology in achieving that is totally heading in the wrong direction, in a very direction that's very destructive to the human soul. The Christians, we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, God said, there is a way that seems right to humanity, but at the end it leads to death. And this is where our culture is going. And I have referred to in the past the research of J.D. on one in 86 cultures. And the direction that our society has chosen will guarantee the collapse of this culture within three generations. No exceptions he found. It's irreversible. It's on its way. And the three indicators have already happened that he found in his own research and he was just a secular researcher out of Oxford. We have the message of life, but what about our kids? I just want to give you an example here, just to, some of us might not be aware of it. So we have a very close friend, a uh, very close friend of Patty. She uh, was a JK teacher, or maybe still is, I'm not sure whether she's totally retired. She teaches the four-year-olds. So uh, there were parents who put their kids in her class knowing in the public school system that they would be safe there got a woman who really loves the Lord, but one day she got a call from one of the parents. What's going on here? I don't know what the kid's name was. We'll call him Johnny. Little Johnny doesn't know if he's a girl or a boy, and he was told at school by the teacher that he could be a girl, he could be a boy, and that boys can become girls and vice versa, and what's going on in your class? She was shocked, because she certainly wasn't saying that, but very soon she found out that she gets a certain amount of time each week for prep time, and while she was doing that, another younger teacher came into her class and was reading to the class this list of books, which you may probably can't see up there in the overhead, but a list of books recommended by the Ontario Teachers Federation of Ontario. It's a reading list. Sorry, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. And it was, it was all about what this child was experiencing or the parent was calling about, so she was very concerned. She went to the principal. Um, and the principal said uh, that she was not to let the parents know what's being read to the children in the JK class, the four-year-olds. principal said, if you let any parents know about these books being read in your class, they'll be treated as an act of insubordination, and there will be serious discipline. So, this is, the, now this is not this school board here. It was a division in Northern Ontario. So uh, this is just one example. If you want to really, I, I just spent some time on the Ontario, sorry, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario website this week and check out the resources. Just check them out. Check out some of the policies. Um, that's all you need to know. I couldn't, uh, I didn't want to, this is not appropriate to be talking about what's on there. But I will say, I, my brother-in-law reached a point where he said he had to take early retirement. 
he was being pressured by the students to cross-dress and have his fingernails painted during Pride Month and, and, and a lot of other things. And he says, I can't take this anymore. He loves the Lord. I can't take this. He had to take early retirement. Um, my, I visited my first cousin a few months ago. He says, uh, he teaches high school. He says, I'm going to have to, uh, I, have to keep, I have to retire this year. I'll be fired. I, I can't go along. This is another school. None of this is this division. I don't know what's happening here. All I'm saying is this, is that we need to give heed to the next generation of Christians. We need to pay attention. There are good, first of all, there are good Christian teachers in our public school system, and they're trying to hold the line. They're trying to do the best they can. They need to be supported by us in prayer. They need wisdom to walk a fine line sometimes, depending on what school board they're in, depending on what school what their colleagues say, some have a lot more freedom and don't experience that pressure. Others are really feeling it. So, remember our school teachers. Pray for them. Support them. And secondly, the children now entering the public school system at the JK level face 14 years of daily immersion in a culture that's increasingly hostile to God. And according to section, I think it was, what was it, 70? Section 70 or 74, item 10, is to be incorporated in every course. This is the Elementary Teachers Federation. Uh, they don't have the personal maturity to navigate this. So what should we do? Number one, our civilization is in trouble and our children are in far more trouble than we ever were. So we don't react in panic. You don't just do something because chances are it'll be wrong and you'll mess up. Here's what God recommends. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. We need to be spirit-led. Secondly, commit yourself to loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and continue to stay focused on your own mission. It's so easy to get distracted when everything is going wrong around you uh, and leave your mission, leave your post. God, you as an individual have been given a mission in this life. It's different for every person. Stay on track. Stay focused on it. Be faithful to fulfill your mission. Be faithful to serve God. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, we ask that you would just give us the wisdom to know how to navigate our way through a culture of deception. And we especially pray for the next generation of Christians. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.